Hey everyone, welcome to Tom French Preaching. This is the podcast of me, Tom French, preaching. I'm a guy who lives in Melbourne and does Bible talks for youth and other people around Australia and all over the internet. To celebrate the release of my new book of devotions on Ephesians for the next little while here on the podcast, I'm going to be releasing talks through the entire book of Ephesians. These talks have been preached in church services, on camps, and in other contexts, and some of them are as old as 2015, some as recent as 2022. Some have been on the podcast before, and some of them are brand new. If you like the talks, hopefully you'll love the devotions. There are 40 days of readings, and they'll take you through the entire book of Ephesians. You can order the book now by heading to tomfrench.com.au forward slash Ephesians. All right, that's all for now. I hope you enjoy the talk. Uh, If you uh, have spent much time uh, talking to me or, you know, hanging out with me, then you probably know that one of the things that I'm, excuse me, very passionate about is going to the movies. Like movies, I love going to the movies, like my my some of my favorite memories in life are going to the movies. If if you could if I could have a day to myself, what I would do is I'd go to the cinema, I'd buy myself some popcorn for like nine dollars, and I would have a great time, even though I know it only cost them twenty cents to make. I get myself a very large Coke, unless it was, you know, Hoyt's where they've just changed to Pepsi, which makes me very upset. So then I would <laughs> smuggle in a Coke and that's pretty exciting too, breaking the rules. And, I, and I'll go to the movies by myself and it's great. And then some of my other great memories are going to the movies with a bunch of people, like going to the Star Wars films when they opened at midnight and dressing up. That was a lot of fun. I went with my wife to the Star Wars Episode 7. We went as Han Solo and Princess Leia. She was Han Solo. I was Princess Leia. <laughs> so, and I, I just love the movies. And something that happens with the cinema pretty regularly is people predict the death of cinema. They're like, things are gone bad for the movies. Like, first, there was television that came along. I don't remember when that happened, but people were like, that's the end of the movies. They're done. Everyone's going to stay home and watch television. But somehow, the movies managed to survive. And then videos came along, and they're like, this is it. This is the end of the movies. People are going to stay home and watch videos. And then the cinema's like, no, we'll just build more cinemas, and we'll have lots of cinemas. And then people are like, great. So they went to the cinema. It still exists. And then people started pirating stuff off the internet, and they're like, this is the end of the cinema. And then they just like, we'll make a more premium experience. And then... You know, I, then Netflix came along and they're like, oh, well, we'll give you reclining leather seats, which I love, which is very good. The reclining seats, just don't get your phone stuck in there or it'll get squashed and that's disappointing. And then now as COVID has happened and people are like, this is the end of the movies, but still, they still seem to exist. I don't know much about the cinema anymore because I had a baby, which is a s- silly thing to do. If you, <laughs> at least if you like going to the movies. I've been once this year, which is... Hurts, but um, maybe maybe I'll go while I'm here. That'll be fun. I'll, uh, anyway, I don't know what, what's happening this afternoon. Um, we'll go to the cinema. Anyway, everyone just predicts the end of the, the cinema. Like, this is, we're done with the cinema. It's going to go away, but it's kinda, it just survives. And I think what happens is that we just kind of do this for all sorts of things in our society. Like these are, This is the end of it, and then it's not the end. 
And something that has been predicted to end for quite a while now is the church. People have been saying, this is the end of the church. Things are done for the church. There's something's can, something has happened, something's come along, and this is, this is it. And, and people have been predicting the end of the church, particularly in the, in the Western world, for at least you know, the last hundred years. They've been saying this is going to be done. And we've had a, a whole lot of things which have come along, which have been a challenging for us as Christians. And so far, the church still exists. I know particularly COVID has been difficult for us. That we, you know, for the first time, you know, in, in our living memory, church had to stop meeting together in person. And uh, like if you'd told us pre-pandemic that the government was going to shut down all the churches, we'd say, well, we'll just keep going then. We will fight the government. And then, uh, then it happened. We we're like, oh, yeah, we'll do it. We'll just watch online. That's fine. I can go to church in my pajamas. It's great. I did go to church in my pajamas. And I ate breakfast during church. Can't do that normally. I mean, you can, but people look at you funny. But... Uh, but then we, you know, we come back, and then, but church isn't quite the same anymore. And, and I don't know exactly what's happened here at St. Stephen's post-COVID, but I know that for a lot of churches, not everyone who you know, left has come back. And church doesn't feel quite the same. And even the people who are really committed are, are a bit less committed. And the people who are you know, kind of committed are a little less committed. And the people who are like, oh, we're not there that much, then they're even there even less. And so we're kind of struggling with this. And we're also, but we were struggling before that because we were figuring out, well, how do we, things work for us culturally as Christians in the world today? Like we, for a while, you know, in Australian society, we're kind of tracking together and we were like, oh yeah, the church's morality and, and the world's morality, they kind of seem like they kind of fit together okay. And then we kind of started diverging and we're like, well, what do we do with this? And are we, do we try and get the world to, to be more like the church or do we just let them go and be like, well, that's fine. And this kind of came to a head in 2017 when we had the same-sex marriage postal survey where we had the question of, do we as Christians say, yes, you know, we should legalize same-sex marriage or do we say, no, we shouldn't legalize same-sex marriage? And does the church have a role to say, yes, the world should fit in with the church's morality or we should try and encourage people to do that? Or do we say, no, you just go and do your own thing and, and we'll go this way? Do we become more like society or do we become less like society? And what's going to be helpful for the church and what's going to be helpful for people meeting Jesus? Are people going to meet Jesus because we're more like the culture we're part of or are people going to meet Jesus because we're less like the culture that we're part of? So what do we do with these things? And so we come out of COVID and we've still got this happening and where probably a lot of us are like well how do we respond particularly to issues of gender and sexuality and these are good and important questions to be wrestling with and things that we haven't been talking about we are talking about things that people have always been wrestling with we now get to wrestle with out in the open and sometimes we're doing a good job of it and sometimes we're doing a bad job of it but we're trying to work out how do we exist as the church and i say all this to set it up, well, here we've got these problems, and I'm not going to give you the answers. There you go. And that's the end of my talk, so I'm done. <laughs> but we're looking at Ephesians 4, and what Ephesians 4 talks about is how do we live as mature, unified Christians? How do we as a church live in unity? And I think if we can get the fundamentals of these first verses of Ephesians 4 down, if we can get that right, then we give ourselves a really good foundation to be dealing with all the other stuff. 
If we're a unified church that loves each other, then we have a great platform to figure out these tricky, prickly issues of how we interact with our culture and what do we do as, as we, as a church, deal with the issues of the culture. But if we don't work that out, then we are going to continue to be a more divided church. If there's anything we've seen in the last two years is that there's plenty of division in the church and it just seems to get worse. That we, we get divided over all sorts of things and over the last two years it's been about like mask mandates and vaccines and what do we do when the government tells us that we can't go to church in our building and we get divided about those things. My guess is there's division within this church about people believing different things. Believing different things is not the end of the church, but if we can't be in unity together, then we're going to be in trouble. So if we can get Ephesians 4 down, then we're going to be set up to face the future well. And so that's why we're looking at it. So we need a little bit of background on Ephesians before we get deep into the passage. Uh, If you know much about Ephesians, then you will know that Paul, uh, when he wrote this, was in prison when he wrote this. Probably it's pretty easy to tell because he says in the first three words there that he's a prisoner. So that's easy to figure out. You don't need to do too much exegesis there. Uh, but he was probably in, uh, under house arrest in Rome awaiting his trial before Caesar at this point in time. He was there for about two years as he was waiting before he uh, had his trial. And he had uh, people who would come and visit him and hang out with him, and, and, and then he would send out letters from where he was. And so one of the letters that he sent out from his house arrest was this letter of Ephesians. Now, Ephesians itself, as a book, uh, is written to the church at Ephesus. Maybe. So if you, uh, if you look at the beginning of Ephesians, at Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Like, well, that settles it. It's to the people in Ephesus. Except that not all of the uh, documents say in Ephesus. A bunch of them just leave out the in Ephesus. So the ancient Greek documents is like, it's to, to God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And so either some people have taken out in Ephesus when they've written down what's in the Bible, when they've copied out the, the, uh, the Greek, or some people put in in Ephesus. And so we go, well, what do we do here? But I think there are some clues in the rest of Ephesians. And if you read Ephesians, Paul is very impersonal in the book of Ephesians. Like Everything's quite broad. There's no particular issues. Like when you read 1 Corinthians, there's some very particular issues going on in 1 Corinthians. There's some particular infighting that's going on. There's people who are, you know, dating their stepmom, which is a bad idea. And he's very clear about it. It's like, don't do that. Uh, in, in, in Philippians, he, he uh, asks you know, these two women to stop fighting with each other and to, to get on with each other. Uh, in another one, I, I don't remember which one, he says, I left my coat and I'm, you know, can you send it for me? You know, he doesn't say that anywhere. It's very, very broad. And so what's probably going on here is that Ephesians was a book that was written to a bunch of churches around the area of Ephesus. And so it was there to be kind of moved around from church to church. And so it was a general message to encourage people uh, in their faith and to to deal with some of the broad issues that were happening in the church. And as you go through the book of Ephesians, particularly the first three chapters, Paul lays out the the theology that's going to be the foundation for the next half of Ephesians. And the theology is about setting up the unity that's going that 
for the church because they are a, a divided church. And they're divided along racial lines of Jew and Gentile. So we don't have to deal with that this much here. If we do, then that's, there's some problems going on. But we are happily are not that spending a lot of time you know, trying to figure out you know, who's a Gentile and who's Jewish and you know, should we associate with each other. Uh, but in, you know, in ancient times, this was a big issue, particularly when you have the Jews who have been set apart for God and they f- were meant to find their identity in living differently and being different from the surrounding people. And so if, if this is how you've been living for thousands of years and then along comes Jesus and, is, and then he saves everyone and then Paul's like, everyone can be part of God's family. Not that everyone couldn't be part of God's family, but just you know, the message got a little bit muddied in there. Everyone can be part of God's family. So now welcome in all these Gentiles into these Jewish congregations. Like, oh, we don't know how we're going to get on with each other. And so Paul is writing to say, well, here is the good news of the hope that you've been called to that you have been saved by Jesus and everyone has been welcomed into God's family, the Jew and the Gentile. Just as God reconciled us to himself, the Jew and the Gentile have been reconciled to each other. And so now as people who are one people together, we live together uh, under Christ and together as God's people, this is how we live in the world and, and how God's work is going to get done. And so now we get into chapter 4 and this is the outworking of the theology of chapters 1 to 3. And so uh, this is the kind of the turning point where after this you get all the practical stuff, like the stuff about how to, you know, husbands and wives get on with each other, how to um, kids and their parents get on with each other, and how to um, slaves and their masters get on with each other, and, you know, how do you do uh, like spiritual warfare, all these kind of things. All that happens after the theology of chapters 1 to 3. So this is where we are, and then we get to chapter 4. So there you are. There's your background hopefully you know Ephesians a little bit better if you've got any spare time you probably need like a spare 20 minutes it might be helpful to go and read uh, just the first three chapters of Ephesians and you'll get a really good kind of foundation for where we are all right so he says this he says as a prisoner of the Lord then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received which gives us the first question well what is the calling that we have received or what is the calling that has been received and this word calling is probably a word that we hear all sorts of, you know, in all sorts of kind of situations as people kind of seek out their calling. And if you wanted to discover your calling today, the, the general advice you would get is, is see what you are passionate about or see, uh, you know, what, is, what speaks to you in your heart. Like, what is it? What is the truest thing for you? And that's one of the things that we find in our culture at the moment is that we are a culture that the most important thing is what is inside of you. If you want to know your truest self, look inside. Listen to your heart. You do you. And that's where you find your calling. But if you look in the Bible, calling is not about what you find inside. You don't have to look into your heart to find your calling. You don't have to find your truest self. You don't have to go out up a mountain and spend some time meditating to find your calling. You can do it if you want to, but... Uh, you know, just take a Bible with you and then you will find your calling because it's an external calling. If you uh, read in Ephesians 1, uh, 18, we see what, uh, what Paul talks about as the calling. He says this. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and the incomparably great power for us who believe. 
So our calling is the hope to which we have been called, the hope of resurrection in Jesus. The calling is that we have been called by Jesus out of death and into life. We've been called out of sin uh, into uh, obedience and righteousness. We've been called into God's family. It's God who does the calling, and God's call has been an irresistible call that we have responded to as He has regenerated us, and we now get to be part of His family and given new life by Him. That is the calling. It's an external calling that has called us into God's family. And so now we are called to live a life worthy of that calling. So you don't have to live a life worthy of your calling, whatever it is that you find in your heart. And it's great if you have passions, that you're, things that you're passionate about that you have found, that's excellent. Like I've felt called into youth ministry and there's nothing wrong with that. If you feel called to be an architect, that's great. If you'd be called to, to be a you know, stay-at-home dad, that's great. If you'd be called to, to drive around Australia in a caravan, that's great. But that's not what this is talking about. This is saying God has called you and he's called you into his family and now as part of God's family, how do you live a life worthy of that calling? And that's a big calling. I watched a documentary recently about Woodstock Festival, not the Woodstock 1969, the Woodstock 1999, which was where they kind of rebooted it 30 years later. And uh, it was fascinating. It was a terrible, terrible event. Like, they did not do good planning. They ran it in the U.S. uh, during summer on an old Air Force base. And the old Air Force base was mostly concrete, uh, which was unpleasant. They didn't have a lot of shade there. They didn't have enough water. They didn't have enough free water, but they did sell bottles of water for like $5 in 1999 money, which I don't know what that is thousand dollars today i don't know and they uh they they didn't have shade and then they didn't have enough toilets and then the toilets overflowed but then people just kind of saw this mud and they were like oh great mud we'll just play in the mud that's what we saw at the old woodstock but it was not mud and uh people people got in fights people started riots the bands encouraged people to to riot and set things on fire it was it was a disaster and it's a very interesting documentary if you want it it's a bit adult but you know most of you are adults so congratulations you're allowed to watch it read the rating anyway well the reason why i'm telling you is because one of, they interviewed someone who was a security guard and the security guard talked about his job that when he was uh, asked to be a security guard he was given some training and the training, you know, consisted of a few hours of someone talking to him and then there was a test. And then the, as he did the test, the person running the test just told him all the answers. And then him and the other security guards turned up on the day. They were given like a shirt and an identification. And then they were sent into to the festival. And he said a bunch of them just, you know, took off their shirts, put on a new shirt and then just went and had a good time at the festival. <laughs> and then a bunch of others of them stood at the front gate and then they took bribes to let people in with drugs and alcohol. And so here was people with a very high calling to keep people safe, a very high calling to protect the, the patrons who had come, and they didn't live up to their calling at all. They just neglected it. And here we are being called to live, up, to live a life worthy of our calling, and our calling is much more important than being a security guard at Woodstock. We are the representatives of Jesus to the world. We are the members of his family. And so how do we live a life worthy of that calling? Well, the good news is that Paul tells us how. He says this in verse 2, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. 
bearing with one another in love. That's what a worthy life looks like. One that is humble, gentle, and patient. So firstly, we can go with humility. Uh, you might have heard the fr- when people say humility is not about thinking less of yourself, it's about thinking of yourself less. People say, C.S. Lewis said that. He didn't. I looked it up on the internet. <laughs> it turns out it was probably, it probably came from Rick Warren in uh, 40 Days of Purpose. Yeah. Those of you who were here you know, in the mid-2000s, you would have done 40 Days of Purpose if you were paying attention. Yeah, I did a puppet show during 40 Days of Purpose. Not one of the highlights of my ministry, but uh, I had a good time. Anyway, the point is, whoever said it, it's a really good quote because it tells us the humili- what humility is. You know? It's not, not like saying, oh, you know, people are like, good work. You're like, no, I did a terrible job. I'm a terrible person. Like, that's not humility. But if you're thinking of others, then you're not thinking about yourself. And in the church, if we're going to be humble people, then it means the church is not about us. It means that when we come to church, we're not here thinking, all right, do I, what's the music? Am I enjoying the music? Or am I, am I happy with you know, the preaching? And, and did enough people talk to me today? And, and are the chairs comfortable enough? And that's not what we're thinking about. We're thinking about the other people who are here. And we're thinking about the other people who aren't here. We're thinking, where's so-and-so? Are they okay? We should check up on them. And, oh, I should see, you know, see how, how, how I'm trying to pick a name that's probably not going to be in the room. Methuselah. Let's check out Methuselah. I know some of you are old, but you're not that old. Uh, and <laughs> check, check out how he's going. And you, and you, and you say, I wonder, how, I wonder how this is working for the kids. And how's it working for the teenagers? And how is it working for the, the people who are older than me? And how is it working for, for the young families? Is this working? How, how are we doing church that, that is a family that cares for people? We're thinking about our, not ourselves, we're thinking about other people. And as we do that, then if, we do, if we're doing that and everyone else is doing that, instead of just having one person looking out for you, you're not looking out for you, but everyone else is looking out for you. And so you've got about 100 people looking out for you and, you, and everyone else has about 100 people looking out for them. Maybe I've increased the size of St. Stephen's a little bit, but great. <laughs> I'm talking in faith. I don't know how big St. Stephen's is. I'm making it up. All right. So humility means that we, just, we think about others and, and, we, and we know that this church exists for others and that as we do things, we do things for others. And as we do that, it will work out for us too. So the next one is that we need to be gentle. And gentleness uh, sometimes gets described as strength under control. Because the opposite of gentleness is not being strong. The opposite of gentleness is just using your strength. Sorry, gentleness is using your strength well. So I've told you that I have a one-year-old daughter. Uh, I used to spend a lot of time trying to get her to sleep. And she went through this phase when she was about six months old where she would stick her hand in the air and then just slapped me across the face. She's like, boom, 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 boom. Which was very cute. A, a little bit annoying, but very cute. If she did that, if she does it when she's 22, not going to be as cute. And it's going to hurt. She doesn't, as a baby, she doesn't have strength under control. But as an adult, I'm hoping she does have her strength under control. Otherwise, she will go to prison. So... <laughs> And we as, we as followers of Jesus, we need to be people who keep our strength 
under control, that we know what power we have. And, and that kind of leads in from humility, because one of the things that sometimes we do is like, oh, I don't have any power. But if you say you don't have any power, you're just not aware of yourself. All of us have power. All of us have power. We might not have physical power, or we might not have financial power, but we have some kind of power. We have power with our words. We have power with our relationships. We have, we have power uh, when people just know that we might be part of it, one group of people they want to be part of. If you're young, like my, my baby, she has power. She has power because she's very cute. She, she, like, she will just take phones off people and suck them. And people are like, sure, you can do that because you're very cute. If I did that, people would not be impressed. All of us have some kind of power, and so we need to be aware of our power, and we need to use it well. And we need to use it in a way that helps people, that helps the weak, that helps the vulnerable, that, that makes this church a place where people are welcomed, where people are protected. One of the big issues that we've faced as a church is the issue of domestic abuse. And domestic abuse happens when people who feel powerless exert their power, what power they have, to get a, 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 a feeling of strength and a feeling of importance. We do not want to be an abusive church. And so we must recognize our power and we must use our power for the good of others, to serve others as we know God has served us in Jesus. And then lastly, we have be patient, bearing with one another in love. And so, what does it mean to be people who are patient? Well, it means that we put up with each other. What, what Paul is saying here is, is, is not pretending that church is always going to be an easy thing to be part of. Like in your family, you don't always like everyone in your family. If you do, there is something wrong with your family. <laughs> and here at church, you don't have to like everyone all the time. But you do have to bear with each other in love all the time. It means that, you know, when there are people who are talking through the service, who are annoying you, that you are wise about how you respond to them, that you are gentle in how you respond to them. You can still be like, oh, Maybe do you mind not having a conversation? I'm trying to pay attention. That'd be great. Uh, yeah, that's all right. But you don't turn around and tell them to shut up or abuse them. It means that, you know, when there's someone who is always late to things, that you, you love them through it. You put up with them. And when there's someone who's rude to you because you're always late to stuff, that you, you love them, even though they're always on time. That's very annoying. It, it means that when there's someone who keeps going back to their sin, that you still love them because you know that just as God keeps loving you in your sin, you get to keep loving them in their sin. That we are patient people. We bear with one another in love. If we can do those things, be humble, be gentle, be patient, we will be doing a very good job of figuring out how we're going to get through the, the next few cultural crises that we have to deal with. And so what, what happens as we do that? Well, we see in uh, verse 4, it says this. Oh, sorry, no, in verse 3, it says this. Make every effort 
to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So as we do these things, as we live a humble, gentle, patient life, we will be keeping the unity of the Spirit. Now what's interesting here is he doesn't say, as you do these things, you will create unity. Because we don't create unity. We already have unity. It's just that we keep the unity of the Spirit. We maintain it by doing these things with each other. On uh, September 22nd last year at 9.53 a.m., I was standing in my kitchen and my wife was sitting at the, uh, at the, the dinner table and she uh, had Layla on her lap. I think Layla had fallen asleep. And I heard this rumbling that kind of felt like it was coming across the park, across the road from my house, towards our house. Like, what is going on? And then everything started to shake and I was like, is this roadworks? I'm like, this is not roadworks. And then my wife was like, what is going on? And I was like, I think this is an earthquake. She's like, I think it is an earthquake. Like, what do we do? And I was like, um, go to the bathroom. And so I was like, okay. And so we kind of ran into the bathroom because I remembered that, you know, when you're in an emergency situation, you should go to the bathroom because there are no, like, you know, windows there. And so we huddled in the bathroom. I remember seeing everything was shaking. There was... It was like a pot plant, and it was, that was, whew, that was going, going nuts. And, was, and I could see the, the glass on the mirror was going... And then uh, and we, we just kind of sheltered in the bathroom. And then when the, when the shaking stopped, we're like, is that it? Is there another earthquake coming? What are we meant to do? No one prepares us for earthquakes like we're Australians. We prepare for like bushfires, and we prepare for snake bites. And these days, you just live in floods. Uh, but... <laughs> But we don't know what to do in earthquakes. I was like, well, maybe we should just leave the building. And so we were like, all right, we'll leave the building. And so we ran down the stairs and, uh, and then we came outside and there was just a bunch of us all standing outside. All the people from the apartment building were like, well, what do we do now? And they're like, I don't know. We'll just get on social media. And so people got on their phones and I texted my family to say, we survived the earthquake. And they're like, what earthquake? And I'm like, you'll hear about it soon. Don't worry. And... Uh, and we kind of bonded with each other. We were like, oh, yeah. This, this. And we're like, oh, do you feel it? Yeah, what's going on for you? And we were kind of chatting to each other about what we'd been through. Just so you uh, see how extensive the damage was, here was our earthquake damage. Oh, there it is. <laughs> they, those normally live on the shelf, but they <laughs> fell off. I also thought some cupboards came open, but it turns out I just left them open. So... <laughs> And there was actually a brick wall that fell down in Melbourne. Uh, that was like, if you watched the news, there was just endless footage of this one brick wall that fell down outside Betty's Burgers. Yeah, Betty's Burgers and Concrete Company, in case you're wondering. I don't know, I don't know why, but the concrete was not good enough to keep the wall up. Anyway, the point is uh, that, that this experience, it bonded us. Like, we got unity in our building. Normally, we just kind of, you know, we see each other in the hall, like, hey, hey, hey. And uh, we're trying to avoid seeing each other in the lift. But we chatted to each other. We bonded with each other. And we, were, we started chatting on the Facebook group because, because we had a shared experience. And us in Melbourne, we all started talking to each other. And people would say, what were you doing when the earthquake happened? And people were making good earthquake jokes. And you know, one of the lecturers at like, my Bible college said, oh, I, was, I was teaching and I was so good, the ground literally shook. And I was like, oh... <laughs> But it bonded us. And one of the ways that we get unity is through a shared experience. 
But shared experiences can get you some way through unity, but it doesn't solve everything in unity. Because we have all had, say, the shared experience of COVID. In Melbourne, we had the shared experience of doing you know, a lot of the last two years in lockdown, and we bonded over that. Like We all kind of chatted to each other about the fact that, yes, we're going through this lockdown together. But you then bring up the name of Dan Andrews, our Premier, and then you realise that we do not have unity much beyond the experience. Some people think it's great, some people think it's the worst thing ever, and then we've got everyone on the spectrum in between. And so you need something more that's going to bring unity. And I think one of the things that you get out of that is you get more unity, not just from a shared experience, but you have a shared mission. So you, the people in Melbourne who are like, our mission is to get through these lockdowns well and to stick to the rules so that we can save as many lives as we can. That is how we're going to do stuff. And we felt unified because we were sharing that mission. And then there are the people like, our mission is to end these lockdowns as quickly as possible. So we will go out and protest. And they felt unified in that shared mission. Now, these two missions didn't match up very well, but those groups were unified together. But even that doesn't work because when you're on a shared mission together, you still have issues with each other. And so then there's the, the next level of unity, which is the unity that you get from identity. That you have a shared identity together. So you can have a different mission and you can have different experiences, but you still are part of the same tribe. And you say, that is our identity. And so we belong to each other. And that's the unity you get as a family, that you belong to each other. That even, even when things are rubbish, you still know who you belong to. Or if, you know, if family doesn't work for you, it's the shared identity of, of the sports team that you go for. Or the the school that you go to or the group of friends from your school that you're part of. Is, is, it's the shared identity of all, whatever group it is that you identify as family, that is, that is where you find your strongest unity. What we have as Christians is that we have the best kind of unity because we have the shared experience of all being people who have been saved by Jesus. All being people who have the hope of the resurrection. We have the shared mission of being called by Jesus to share his good news in the world. And we have the shared identity of being part of God's family. That is the family that gets its name from God our Father and the family that will last for eternity. That is a unity that, is, that lasts and a unity that is given to us by the Spirit. And so when we are called to, to keep the unity of the Spirit, this is not some small level unity that you, know, you experience, you, know, you had a good time at church together and so that is the unity that you have. Now this is the shared experience of being saved, the shared mission of letting the world know about Jesus, the shared identity of being part of God's family. That is our unity. And that is what we build on as the church. And so then we get told uh, as we've get to the end of this passage, we get told what are the key components of this unity. We see that there is one body, one spirit, just as we were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. That is the essence of our unity. That we have one body, 
That means that as Christians, there are not, there's not like the body down the road with the Baptists and then there's the, the body down the road with the Catholics and the body down the road with the United Church and then there's this body here. There's not a bunch of different bodies of Christ. There is one body of Christ that we all belong to each other and we all need each other for us to function as God's people in the world. And we're going to spend a bit more time talking about that in, our, in the third talk. And then we have one spirit. So we have one Holy Spirit who is God who lives in each one of us, who is regenerating us to make us more like Jesus. That means that the people who love reading their Bible, because that's where they find the Spirit, have the same Holy Spirit as the people who love sticking their hands in the air and speaking in tongues and falling over. They're the same people because they've got the same spirit. And I know sometimes those people definitely cross over, but sometimes they definitely do not. But both have one spirit. We don't have the spirit who does the weird things and the spirit who is the normal. We have one Holy Spirit. He's our spirit. Our, far, our God who lives in us. We have one hope. We have one hope that we look forward to, and that is the return of Jesus. He's going to come back and he's going to remake this world. That this world that is very broken now will not always remain like this. This world that, is, that seems to be on the brink of crisis will not always be like this. One day Jesus is returning and he's going to make it all right. That is our hope that we are looking forward to. And we know that it is coming because our one Lord Jesus rose from the dead. Because he rose from the dead and that is the first fruits of the resurrection. That if he rose from the dead, we all rise like him in the new creation. We look forward to that. So we have our one Lord Jesus. We have one faith. We trust in this one Lord. And we don't have one faith for the people who are really well behaved and one faith for the people who need a lot of forgiving. Now there's one faith and all of us have it together in our one Lord Jesus. We have one baptism and that's not talking about the difference between baptizing babies and baptizing adults. It's meaning there is, there is one way that we enter the kingdom. There is one way and that is through dying to ourselves and rising to new life in Jesus is symbolized through the waters of baptism. And we have one Father. So there's not one, one God for the Jews and one God for the Gentiles, not one God for the men and one God for the women, not one God for the rich and one God for the poor, not one God for the liberals and one God for the conservatives, not one God for, for the people who like Coke and one God for the people who like Pepsi. There is one God, one Father. And all of us get our life from him. This is where our unity lies in this identity as being people, the one people, in the one faith with the one God. And so our unity as Christians is going to be expressed through our shared experience, our shared mission, and our shared, uh, our shared identity expressed in love. The love of people who are humble, who are gentle, who are patient. 
And we do it following our one Lord Jesus Christ, who the way he lived showed us what it means to live like this. That he was patient, sorry, he was humble when he came as God himself, but he came to live the life of a servant. The one who was king served us when he gave his life for us. That we could have lorded it over us. He could have ruled us. He chose not to. He was humble and showed us how to be humble. He was gentle. He had all the power in the world. And yet he chose not to use it to hurt us, but only to help us. And he was patient. And he continues to be patient. Because the Lord's patience means repentance. That we get to follow him with all our sin, all our baggage, all the times we keep stuffing up and are not humble and are not gentle and are not patient and we still get forgiven. He forgave us once and he forgives us again and again and again and he'll keep doing it. Jesus shows us how to live this life and we get to follow him as our Lord. And as we live the way he showed us to live, we'll be set up to be a church that exists well in this world, whatever it has to throw throw at us. How about I pray for us? Father God, we thank you uh, that you have given us Jesus. We thank you that he has shown us how to live, that he has shown us what it means to be people uh, who are humble, who are gentle and who are patient. We thank you that the unity that we have, we do not need to create ourselves, but you have given it to us in your spirit. So I pray that we as your people would live out this unity, that it will be expressed in love, and that because we are unified, that we will be people who can live out your mission in this world. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. I hope you love Jesus just that little bit more. If you want to get your hands on the Ephesians devotions, then head to tomfrench.com.au forward slash Ephesians. There you can also find my other books, videos, and plenty of other stuff. So feel free to check it out. And don't forget to give this podcast a rating and review wherever you get your podcast so that other people might be able to discover it too. Till next time, have a good one.